Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found the flame. Welcome to the first ever episode of Beyond Therapy. Before we get into today's conversation, I want to reverse engineer this whole podcast business for you. I work with an amazing team of mental health providers at Creaseman Counseling in North Carolina. Part of my role in this organization is to make sure that this incredible bunch of humans has some semblance of satisfaction in their work, which is no small feat in a field with such high burnout rates. So when I asked them what would make the work that they do here more rewarding, they were pretty unanimous in wanting to have some outlet for educating the community about the mental health needs they address every day. Mental health in the United States is fraught with racial, gender, and economic barriers, not to mention stigma. Every day we sit with clients who can trace some measure of their pain back to a broken system. The woman whose doctor sent her to counseling for stress, who actually had a thyroid condition, the gay man whose father disowned him when his pastor confirmed that homosexuality was a mortal sin, the woman whose hatred of her body all started after a sexual assault that no one in her family believed happened. As we encounter the collateral damage of systems that serve primarily white, cisgendered, straight, able-bodied men, Many providers realize that we have not been equipped by our training programs to truly address the intersectional reality of mental health care. Enter Beyond Therapy. The goal here is to educate clinicians and the community at large about real-world issues impacting mental health care. We're going to cover everything from religious trauma to neurodivergence to being a mental health provider with a mental illness all with a core focus on historically marginalized folks. All right, enough monologuing. Let's get to our first conversation, which focuses on counseling male-identified survivors of sex trafficking. First, I'll introduce you to our guest, Anna Smith, who's an incredible clinician, advocate, and a survivor herself. And I do have a cat that is really chatty, but her and I had a conversation. Okay. So that's cool. I'm sure she'll be receptive to that. Um, since yeah, cats usually possibly. are very receptive. <laughs> okay. So today I'm joined by Anna Smith, a licensed clinical social work associate in North Carolina, RYT 500, and a registered psychotherapist in Colorado. She's spent nearly 10 years working in therapeutic services, focusing on developing an understanding of the mind-body connection and best approaches for clinical interventions. Anna's education includes a Master's of Social Work from East Carolina University and 500 RYT in Yoga Therapeutics from the Wilmington Yoga Center. Prior to coming to clinical work, she collaborated with trauma experts to develop innovative approaches to care for boys and men who have exited the life of sex trafficking. As a result of her findings, she co-produced a full-length documentary film on the issue called Boys, which we will be linking in the show notes. It's amazing. Anna is also adjunct faculty at Metropolitan State Denver School of Social Work and UNC Chapel Hill School of Social Work. 
As an anti-trafficking advocate, Anna enjoys using her knowledge and personal experience to strengthen and stand in freedom with others through speaking, writing, teaching, and consulting. Um, And I'm just so excited to have your wisdom and experience here to bear on this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, so happy to be here, Candace. Yeah, this is great. Well, let's jump in. I, one thing that stood out because I watched your documentary, which, as I mentioned, was amazing. Uh, Thank you. While watching the film, seeing the survivors, and also reading um, even the the literature on um, human trafficking, I was struck just by how deeply painful this work seems to be and just how heavy it mm-hmm. is. Uh, mm-hmm. So I wondered if we could start with just telling me a little bit about how you got into this work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it feels like so long ago at this point. Uh, it's been over 10 years. But when I first jumped into the work, uh, it was right out of undergrad. And um, at the time, there was a really there was a void of services for male-identified survivors. And myself being a female-identified survivor of trafficking, I'd found a lot of community. I'd found a lot of other, um, especially uh, female-identified survivors to be to um, heal with and grow with and, and share, like you mentioned, the burden of the work with. But I realized that as I got into the work and started doing case management and peer support, that there was a this gap for male-identified survivors. And I would say that, you know, across the nation at that time, again, it was like 10 years ago, um, there was little literature out there. I mean, just a handful of quantitative research studies focused on the issue that would even mention boys and, and very little as far as treatment options. And a lot of documentaries or a handful of documentaries on how to address the topic from a, a female perspective, but nothing as far as a male-identified survivor perspective. So that's where the film came in. And um, how I got into this work and stayed in this work, my own journey, my own healing, but also that there's a huge need for uh, women to come, women-identified survivors to not only hold space for other women and and their healing and um, uh, their recovery, but also to say, you know, there needs to be other people around this table. There needs to be other genders represented. There needs to be um, other uh, ethnic orientations. And so I stayed in the work and continue to stay in the work because I, I just really found that a need and uh, continue to see it transpire with the film. It's It's been really cool, Candice. I think I was mentioning to you when we were chatting earlier how it's recirculated. And our hope with the film from the whole team was uh, to have actually male-identified survivors use it if they wanted to for trainings, for education, because there's a lot of advocates even now. And so um, it's been a long journey, but it, it's definitely been a been an interesting ride for sure. Well, you mentioned so many things that I want us to dive into deeper. I mean, one, the intersectional nature, I'm mean, almost like the reverse intersectional nature, you know, so if we think of female identified folks as traditionally being um, you know, kind of more oppressed relative to male identified folks, we have this situation where, you know, how it, it's a perfect example of how patriarchy hurts everyone, um, where male identified folks are at such a disadvantage in terms of even having their stories believed, which stood out to me from the documentary, you know, how many male survivors would reach out for help to people they cared about and no one would believe them. So I definitely want to jump, get into that in just a minute, because that feels like it's really at the core 
of this yeah. work. Um, I wonder if you can orient us a little bit to what trafficking is, because I th- I've heard you mention that, you know, a lot of us have this image in our head of it being like Liam Neeson's movie Taken, you know, some stranger at the airport who seduces the female victim. And I'm just beginning to learn how not like that it really is. So if you could share a little bit about just what trafficking is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you brought up Taken. Uh, It's a running joke in the anti-trafficking world that that is absolutely not how it looks. Um, So trafficking essentially is broken down to two categories. So we think about labor trafficking. That's any type of uh, forced work. Um, What that can look like is uh, restaurant work, uh, agriculture, um, I mentioned here in North Carolina that a big a big part of the uh, labor trafficking we see is the tourist industry on the coast as well. And so that can look like a scenario could be there someone is, you know, forced to work for no pay at a restaurant or on a shipping boat or um, in an agricultural setting, um, things that could happen in that situation. They're denied pay, their documents are taken. Uh, they are lied to and said that uh, you know, if you tell anyone, you know, well, it could be a lie. It could actually be true, but it's part of the force, fraud, and coercion piece. Um, they'll say that we'll, um, you know, kill your family. We will, uh, you know, we will, um, you know, do X, Y, Z to you. And then the other the other category is sex trafficking. So when we think of sex trafficking, probably we come back to the Liam Neeson uh, experience or film, which is not how it traditionally looks. Uh, Sex trafficking is any type of um, forced sex act. So it could be prostitution. It could be pornography. Um, We see with minors and particularly um, what's called couch surfing. So essentially exchanging a sex act for a place to stay or food. Uh, What I do want to mention with minors in particular is that under 18, there doesn't need to ha- have a third party or a trafficker. So generally with, tra- with trafficking, there's the trafficker, there's the victim. And then in sex trafficking, there's the buyer or consumer of the sex act. Uh, so again, thinking about pornography, prostitution, uh, strip, strip club, um, nude pictures, those sort of things. With minors, there doesn't have to be a trafficker in place. It, it can just be the, um, the consumer or buyer for it to be considered trafficking. And so you have these two categories and often in the work we see um, sex trafficking be more highlighted, but labor trafficking is absolutely very prevalent. Um, When I was doing the work, um, especially when I first started out, I worked with several labor trafficking survivors and it's very prevalent, especially in rural communities, um, especially where there's agricultural present. and it's not just foreign nationals that are victims. We also see it with minors. We also see it with uh, American citizens. And so um, those are the two categories. That was something that I was just completely unaware of was just the scope of what is included under this definition of trafficking. To go back to this piece around the force, fraud, and coercion, which seems like it's really kind of a defining characteristic of trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also struck to learn that it's only been since 2000 that minors were protected from trafficking Mm -hmm. that didn't involve force, fraud, and coercion. So if you can kind of paint a picture, what was it like for minors before this act, and what did the act do to protect 
folks from these sorts of yeah. situations. Yeah. So historically, the TVPA uh, or Trafficking Victims Protection Act passed in 2000. It's been reauthorized six times since then. The last was in 2021. Uh, before there's protection for minors, Candace, we often saw minors being arrested for prostitution. So painting the picture, you know, prior to 2000, oftentimes they would be put in jail, they'd be called delinquents, they would say something is wrong with them. And, and the folks that were uh, purchasing the sex act um, in particular weren't, you know, weren't arrested by any means. I'd say prior to 2000, there were very small pockets that even identified labor trafficking as an issue. I think I mentioned that out of the two, sex trafficking is way more highlighted. And, and I think that is because of our culture. The reauthorization has been helpful uh, on to slowly unravel the narrative that most survivors of trafficking are either, you know, white women or they're foreign national. What we know is that survivors of trafficking look different, just like their stories look different, just like their experiences look different. There's no cookie cutter survivor. And we, and we know that, uh, you know, women and folks of color are affected by the issue. We also know that folks across the gender spectrum are affected by the issue. Um, when it was for, when the TVPA first was, came on scene, it was really historically, um, focused on foreign national survivors, which is so great. Like, that's so wonderful. And we want that, but we also need to start to think outside the lens of, okay, what, what, what do survivors look like across, um, across the spectrum? And we know that we take on different shapes and forms and there needs to be very unique, uh, legislation and funding to support that. One of the big gaps now still is that a lot of the funding, federal funding in particular, focuses on women and girls and, and does not focus on male identified survivors um, and still also labor trafficking survivors. Uh, there's been a little bit of funding come down on the federal level for that, but not much. And so there still needs to be the work done to help uh, give language that these survivors need uh, support and care and also legislation to protect and support them. So when I think about how legislation translates into practice and how this question of does it need to be gendered, and side note, my personal belief is obviously it needs to name the identities of people who are vulnerable. How does that translate into what are the real world implications? So if, if a bill focuses on female identified folks, what is the trickle down of that such that male identified folks end up left out of that equation? Mm -hmm. So I worked for a little bit of time um, uh, doing uh, work in the federal realm, um, not, not very long, but a little bit of time, and, and it translates into funding. So federal grants, um, a lot of nonprofits rely on federal grants. They rely on those dollars, and that even trickles down to the state pool in which that gets dispersed amongst organizations. But when when um, the federal dollars translate into these particular grants, it, it can make it difficult for organization that maybe supports all male identified survivors or wants to start a program for that or wants to support you know, labor trafficking survivors. If their program doesn't meet the box for the funding, then that can render them vulnerable to not continue to receive um, the dollars they need to keep the lights on. And we all know, I mean, and, and especially with the economy the way it is now, a lot of those organizations do rely on federal dollars because uh, private funding, it's, it's tough right now with private funding. 
So going back to the timing of the TVPA, uh, especially when you highlight that prior to this act, uh, minors' kids could be charged with childhood prostitution. So I'm thinking that there are grown-ups today who are still carrying the weight of charges, effectively Mm -hmm. their vulnerability being criminalized. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can speak a little to that, to folks who you've maybe worked with who didn't see the benefit of this act. What's it been like for them? Yeah. And so I, I have not worked with any juveniles that have been arrested because I, when I came in, into the work, we weren't seeing children being arrested. We were seeing adults though. Um, and, and still that's a struggle here today. Um, not everywhere do um, law enforcement recognize that if a individual is, in, is um, using the means of prostitution and maybe they don't, maybe they do have a trafficker. Maybe they don't, they don't recognize that one, maybe that is a way that they're trying to get the, you know, their bills paid, those sort of things. Um, or look a little further and see, okay, does this person have a trafficker? Do they have someone who's taking their money from them? Uh, so often, yeah, women or, uh, men or other identified, um, genders are arrested. Uh, those implications go really far, uh, finding a job. Um, you know, how do you get that taken off your record? Um, many have kiddos and so, you know, then you have social services in coming in the scene, which we know, um, as a system isn't generally always helpful to look at the full picture of how to keep the family together um, or how to provide uh, that two generation support to the mom and kid or dad and kid. And, and so it's a long journey. It's a, and a lot of times when folks are arrested, they just get back out and get back with their trafficker and cover and repeat the cycle similar to domestic violence. Uh, working with survivors of trafficking. And again, every situation is unique. I know we're talking generally about um, any, we're talking about prostitution at the moment or engaging and, and, you know, sex trafficking, but um, the peer support and being mindful that there's going to be repeat cycles of coming in and out of their situation, that that is part of the process, similar to domestic violence, um, similar to any type of abusive relationship. It's not going to be an overnight process. But the thing that's really difficult is that the record follows. And it can be anything from, again, criminalizing prostitution or any type of illegal act that the individual did to get through their trafficking situation or to cover for their trafficker. And so it's really important to have legal services trained and um, to partner with you know, these organizations to help survivors get that taken off the record, uh, to navigate the legal system, but it, it creates barriers. And even, you know, me as a, that wasn't my experience as a survivor, but I'm thinking about, you know, my license as a therapist. And if I had a record, I couldn't get a license even, you know, 10, 15 years out. And, and these are real life barriers that we really need to think about as professionals because it'll hinder um, survivors of various types of violence actually getting into professional spaces and we need lived experience. I mean, when you speak about your own experience, I, and the, the aspect of licensure, I mean, I'm just thinking about how much more 
valuable it is to be working with a professional who's also a survivor, you know, how much safer a space that must feel, even without you, you know, disclosing necessarily just the empathy that that would bring. So even just that tiny little sliver of the trickle down impact just, I think, highlights just how significant the barriers are. And I think also you're pointing to something, uh, you know, a, a directive, I think, for professionals is uh, building relationships with other resources. So mm-hmm. having a list of attorneys that you know will take on a pro bono case or who specialize in getting a, a charge removed. In my own work, especially being from a counseling background instead of a social work background, those elements of of what might be case management have always just felt like magical and outside the realm of my ability. <laughs> so you know, I think making this something that is reachable for providers, like this is a networking thing. You know, this is a mm-hmm. make connections with people who offer services that are add-ons to what you're doing. Um, that feels so mm-hmm. important. And I'm so glad you mentioned that. So if we turn toward male-identified uh, folks, what sort of factors make them particularly vulnerable? And this may be an intersectional piece too. So uh, BIPOC males may be more or less vulnerable. What? Tell me about some of those factors. Yeah, and 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 so before we jump into that question, I first want to want to name something in that I, I am a white woman and I speak from a place of privilege. Um, and and to say that in this space, um, I, I will answer your question, but I've had to do. Um, my own work and continue to seek to do my own work. Um, I, I, to even, um, work remotely well with, um, male identified survivors. Um, I think it's important, you know, I know we talked about the trickle down and as you were saying that, and I was like, Oh, but I, I hold so much privilege in this space. And I think that is one of the biggest barriers, um, when we're getting into movements of anti-violence, uh, not just trafficking, domestic violence, sexual assault. Um, it is so female centric and grateful that there are spaces for women identified individuals uh, to get that support, to uh, recover, to uh, meet other survivors. But what we've done and being so female centric, I even think about the Me Too movement, why that is so helpful. I mean, it has also created this large space of silence for male-identified individuals, especially BIPOC males, and and also for LGBTQ plus folks. Um, it, it creates this barrier, and and in my work with with male-identified survivors, I'd say the largest barrier is simply being male presenting. Um, I've, I've worked with individuals that were turned away from services because they were they were male or even would go on a website to, to seek out services and notice, well, the languaging doesn't fit my, um, my pronouns. Um, the colors are, are very much female focused, not saying that one color is, but let's think about marketing and branding. And if you're all in pink and have pictures of women on the website, then you, you're really speaking to who you're, who you're serving. And so, and also, if you look at the history of trauma care, uh, um, it's a lot of the research out there is focused on on women and particularly white women. Um, the white feminist movement has been very harmful in these spaces and and centering these stories of 
of white women victimized by men and particularly men of color. And, and so, you know, I, I've done a lot of work um, in the spaces of anti-trafficking movement, trying to challenge those narratives of, um, okay, there's 90, 90% of the women, 90% of the people in this room are women. And, and many of us uh, maybe have a history where we've been told that we better watch out, we better um, guard up, be mindful of men. Um, and so that, that all comes into the space of how we deliver services, how we, um, how we set up programs, how we uh, communicate to any male identified or male presenting or um, LGBTQ folks who come in and seek services. Um, it all trickles down to be, um, to be very unhelpful and to create this environment of one, we don't have services for you. And, and two, it, when you disclose, we, we may not really believe you. And, you know, as a therapist, uh, one of the most powerful things in the room is transference and countertransference. So if you're sitting with, with, a, with a male and particularly uh, maybe a, a BIPOC male or uh, male presenting, and you're sitting there and thinking, oh, this is probably what they have. Maybe it's um, generalized anxiety or whatever. Um, and, and they have a story of, um, you know, sexual violence, they're not going to disclose unless they know that you'll one, believe them and, and two, are ready to hear it. And that comes in, that can be seen, I think, in a lot of environments from, you know, law enforcement, which that's a whole nother category, um, to any type of service provider um, in the community. When you, when you mentioned countertransference, I'm also connecting as a white woman with the the dynamic of sitting across from a black male and all of the conditioning that I have received around fearing black bodies, fearing men, mm-hmm. also thinking about how the counseling field is 90% female and majority white. I think that really highlights, I mean, one, sort of the impact of, of white feminism in terms of how services are delivered. Um, but two, it also, just as you're describing it for something that would already be so difficult to disclose as any human, but certainly as, you know, a male identified person in our society, uh, just the barriers seem very intense to seeking services and then getting the care you need when you're in the door. Um, and just to kind of, um, as we mentioned white feminism, I love your both and approach, you know, is this idea that yes, Me Too has been wonderful for the population that it targets and the population it targets need to, needs to be significantly broader uh, in terms of who gets to sit at the table, you know, who's included. Um, I read this great quote about what white feminism is. It was actually, it was in an article about Koa Beck's book, White Feminism, And the author said, the goal of white feminism is not to alter the systems that oppress women, patriarchy, capitalism, imperialism, but to succeed within them. Which is a pretty damning account, you know, of what I think our, at least our mother's generation of feminism has looked like. Um, So if we think about this notion that there's this narrative of empowerment in white feminism, but it's empowerment within the system as is. How is that a problem for male identified survivors? Yeah. So 
automatically when I hear that quote, I'm like, let's, let's tear that down. Like, let's take down all the patriarchal walls. Cause so there's, and I can speak mostly to the anti-trafficking movement. I can't speak as broadly to the other movements, but there's this essence of power being a woman in the movement who also is a survivor. Um, there is this space of like, I know one, I can be at the table because of my experience and expertise, but also the education I bring. And then also I have this extra layer of privilege, which I'm, so I'm a white woman. And so um, there, you know, the keys are there and, and it's, it's not helpful to continue that cycle of the only people who are invited to the table and who chair the table being women. Um, I'll say that across the nation, there's a handful of organizations that will that actively address male male identified um, trafficking, providing services, advocacy, training. I, I think the biggest barrier that I've seen is that there continues to be um, the propaganda, the funding, um, the conversation is so female centric. Even ten years in, there are there are some changes, but you know, I'll, I'll never forget being at a conference. It was about five years ago now. So I don't think this particular organization would do it again. And I won't say the name, but they had a, um, they were trying to do a demonstration to create awareness about trafficking. And they had a pink box where a little tiny, you know, white girl stood in and their message was essentially um, don't sell little girls and it had like a for sale sign on it. And it was like everything wrong with what many of the anti, you know, violence movements have been. I, I think that's where we start is like the messaging, the people running the programs um, and, and the research we're doing around how to, how to support survivors. Um, I think those who are in power and have a space to do so. Like, I think it's really helpful not only to actively train your staff around biases and particularly gender biases. If you have an all female staff or 90% female staff, there have to be these hard conversations. Like you mentioned, okay, so you're a woman doing this work. You possibly have a history of harm. Maybe it's with male identified individuals. Maybe not. Um, maybe if you don't have that history, what has, what have you been told? Have you been told to hold your keys? in between your um, your fist on the way to your car, just because there's probably a man in the parking lot and he's gonna hop out and get you. Um, we as women have been conditioned to fear men and, and particularly fear men of color. Um, and, and it's not helpful to continue to create programs centered around those thoughts and to not address this elephant in the room because it creates a barrier when we know very well from some research studies about you know, sexual abuse, sexual violence does affect male identified folks. It, it affects LGBTQ plus folks. Um, and I think what I want to speak to mostly is like male presenting individuals um, in the space. And so if we're not addressing that other half, some of the research suggests up to 50%, we are um, just continuing to perpetuate the patri patriarchal system and benefit from it, like you mentioned. And so we've got to tear that hear that down. I mean, you mentioned so many great directions, I think, to go, you know, in terms of looking at our own service systems and having, I mean, as someone who does have a business that has predominantly female identified folks on staff, 
that feels so important and something that I definitely want to be more intentional about now that you've mentioned it is checking out those internalized biases toward men that most of us likely have. Maybe we could say all of us have, and we might just be at varying degrees of having checked it out, <laughs> you know? Um, when you when we think about male-identified folks, I also hear how if this narrative is that white women are the only ones impacted and it'll be because someone jumps out of a bush and attacks you, I what I heard in the documentary, too, was so many men who did not realize they were being trafficked. Because if there's not a narrative, if there's not a representative story of what could be happening to you, then how do you know that's what's happening to you? So I wonder if you could speak to how, what is the process for a male-identified person? And I know the stories are going to vary widely, but how does this happen to them? Yeah. So in the film, there's a, a number of men who um, disclose and, and speak to their own personal story. It, it, it happens um, in various ways. We I've worked with with boys and men who have been trafficked in college, um, you know, picked up at, at a bar. And before they know it, um, this person who picked them up turns out to be a trafficker. And the whole elements of force, fraud, and coercion come into play. And um, they're in a relationship where they feel like they can't get out of it. Um, folks are trafficked by um, trusted members of a family system. So it could be like an uncle. Um, again, we know with sexual abuse, the white van theory is not true. Um, generally, meaning that, you know, the bad person is, isn't going to drive by in a white van and take you, like take in. Um, a lot of kids are trafficked by someone in that family system or in a community that presents safe. So it could be friend. Uh, we've seen some teachers, uh, teachers traffic kiddos, um, parents, unfortunately, I think that was mentioned a couple times in the film where um, parents were involved uh, in the trafficking situation. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that for most survivors, not all the time, the person that's going to hurt them or a, a, will be in part of that inner circle, um, how folks get out, it is different for everybody. Sometimes, um, you know, I think it, one, and one of the survivors in the film mentioned, uh, I think Judge Robert Long mentioned that it, there was a point in time where it stopped. Sometimes that happens. Um, sometimes uh, after many times of trying to leave, the survivor is able to leave. Uh, sometimes the trafficker, um, they move away from their trafficker, you know, if it's part of a friend group, then maybe they move away with their family. Um, maybe they find services and build a relationship with a case manager. And yeah, eventually they decide to leave and um, pursue a different path. But how someone gets into it, uh, generally there's a, sometimes, generally there's a history of maybe sexual abuse um, or dysfunction in the family of some form. And dysfunction can look like many different things. It can look like a parent who maybe struggles with substance abuse, has different mental health disorders that go unaddressed. Many different vulnerabilities can take place prior to their being trafficking. Some other things that you had mentioned as possible vulnerabilities, um, it sounds like sort of generally a lack of a consistent and present caregiver 
Um, so anyone mm-hmm. that that might impact someone who's in foster care, you know, someone who's running away frequently, likely because of the discord, some sort of discord at home, dysfunction at home. I mean, it feels so important to, to note the overlap of substance use in, in this population, mm-hmm. both as like, uh, if it's happening in the home, then that makes a child more vulnerable. But if a person is using themselves, you know, how it, it seems like substance use is really kind of a common thread, um, which has its own stigma, right? So it just se- seems mm-hmm. like there's just kind of one layer of stigma after another that impacts this population. Yeah, substance use is uh, a huge part of a lot of trafficking situations. One, it could be used to keep a person, keep a person in their situation. So um, a trafficker could use various forms of substance to, um, yeah, keep someone under control. Um, The vulnerabilities, if if a survivor is using substance or if a family member is, Um, You're right to name that, you know, children who've had touch points of the system research shows that they are more vulnerable. But I also want to say the other side, there are a lot of survivors that never had a touch point with the system and were absolutely trafficked. Um, And so there are so many layers. You're right. And there's so many different vulnerabilities and there's so many different facets into how this can look. I think one of the things that I do want to mention, there's for every survivor that I've worked with or every survivor that I call colleague or friend, there's a point in time where they decide that I do want to one, either leave or and and pursue um, some sort of healing recovery work. Um, that is a common thread amongst survivors who who get out of their situation. Well, and that feels like that's also another important piece of sort of how white feminism is harmful across the board for survivors of, of violence is if we're characterizing women as weak and being in need of rescue. Uh, and then we generalize that to any victim as being weak and in need of rescue, we really disempower folks and minimize the, the strength and courage and possibility of exiting that might exist. How does that look in, in recovery? Like how do you work through that sort of like victim maybe mindset? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a running joke in the movement of like, please don't say rescue uh, <laughs> or please don't name your organization rescue. Uh, because you're right. Like even if there is a service provider who is there waiting maybe an emergency shelter or um, again, I've worked with some really great detectives um, who are very helpful and helping making sure that traffickers get um, you know, prosecuted and that they're connected with service care providers so survivors can get the support they need. Um, it, it's solely on the survivor to decide one, I wanna get out and two, I don't, I don't wanna get back with my trafficker um, and continue to repeat these cycles. Uh, similar to, you know, I'll compare it to any type of recovery worker or most forms of even seeking mental health treatment. Um, it, it's always on, we never want our clients to work harder than us, right? We want them to, to again, uh, want to be there um, and continue to be an active participant in treatment. 
And so I, I think what you asked one is like the barrier and how unhelpful it is for folks to assume um, in a service care position that they're going to rescue somebody and they're going to be oh so grateful and oh so happy. Um, I did a uh, internship before I graduated my senior year of undergrad and I worked in a um, safe home for uh, girls who had exited trafficking and um, teenage girls. And I'll never forget how angry and ungrateful they were to be there. They were so, so angry and, and did not, did not care that uh, we were there to support them. They, they really um, just wanted their, their fun, fast life back, which I would say is their, what, how they sell trafficking. Um, generally when a lot of people exit their situation and particularly to sex trafficking, uh, they, they still are maybe in love with their trafficker. There's a lot of trauma bonding that takes place where uh, not every moment is absolutely terrible with their trafficker. There are moments where maybe they took them to their favorite restaurant uh, or maybe took them to buy the pair of sneakers they really wanted. Maybe they uh, you know treated them with what they saw in the moment of love and kindness. Because in a way, most traffickers are very cunning in how they'll meet those vulnerable needs of a victim. And so, uh, yes, a, vic a victim or survivor of trafficking has to choose to want to get out. Um, and that process is a continual choice day after day to not repeat those cycles. Um, just like I mentioned with the, the youth I worked with in that internship, they, um, they were pissed. They, um, and most of them still love their trafficker. Now they weren't court mandated. They could leave if they wanted. And some of them did, some of them ran away. Um, and so it is very disempowering for a service care provider to think, oh, this person is gonna be very happy to continue to come get services to even, you know, thinking 10 years out, if a survivor is getting, um, you know, counseling support that they're gonna um, need someone to, like coddle them, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that reminds me so much of working with DV survivors and how important it felt to name the ambivalence and to validate the ambivalence, right? Mm -hmm. Of, of course, I hate that this person has been very harmful to me and I still recognize and feel very connected to all the great things about this person you know, is that you don't, you don't have to choose which one is true. Uh, the work then, at least kind of when folks are sitting across from me at that point in their journey is generally just to decide what works for you, you know, not was this person good or bad, but does continuing to engage with this person work for you? The other thing that shows up is how important anger would likely be. I mean, granted, it's anger directed at the care providers, which certainly doesn't feel great, you know, but um, how necessary anger is for change. So I, mm -hmm. I don't know that I would want to dampen anger. I would want them to be nicer to me, maybe, you know, like, hey, don't yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> which is right, probably right. why I don't work with teenagers. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can't flip that table, <clears throat> but you can't yeah, be mad. No, let's don't do that. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, the strength-based perspective is so um, pivotal to working with survivors. I think of any violence, right? Like helping them remember, oh, well, you chose, you did chose to leave and, um, you know, helping them see their strength and the strength of even continuing to, um, to, to not go back every single day. 
um, I think that's really important. So as we're thinking about engaging with care providers, you're describing a situation where someone, you know, a, a teenager, for example, um, is starting care while still very much in the cycle. When you think about where survivors are most likely to engage in outpatient therapy, for example, where are they generally in their journeys? Mm-hmm. Out of their situation for a little bit of time. So 10, 5, 15. I think in the film, I mentioned for most of the men, they didn't self-identify till maybe like 15, 20 years out. Um, and so um, that would be when they would come into the most outpatient therapy uh, situations where they're seeking services. Uh, and so they, again, may not be in the active phase of getting out of their situation. They may be wanting help with parenting or managing their trauma symptoms or maybe life career work. Um, who knows? But that I would say it would be around that time, anywhere 5, 10, 15 years out, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was so struck by that number, you know, that it was 15 to 20 years for male survivors in particular. Uh, and just thinking mm-hmm. about, especially when you you referenced earlier that so many folks in general um, are more likely to be trafficked by someone that they know. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 20 years, 20 years maybe of problematic relationships, of difficulty with work, of poor self-esteem. What kind of attachment work is necessary, particularly for male survivors in a therapeutic mm-hmm. setting? Yeah, there's a great case study and I can send it to you once we hop off and you may want to add it in the show notes, but um, it, it it's with a, um, a child um, who is a survivor of trafficking with his mother. But I think the way the um, it paints the attachment and building the therapeutic alliance in the therapy room is very helpful. And that there are certain sessions where little work and parentheses work is being done with the survivor. Um, there are, there's rapport building and depending on, you know, I'm thinking depending on where the survivor is in their journey, they may have had a therapist before you, or this may be their first experience in therapy. I, I want to emphasize building that attachment or that safe space, um, creating a container where the therapeutic work can begin. Rapport building is so helpful. Uh, and, and we may feel like when we're in session, oh, there's no like work being done. Um, but, but really that is the work with the survivor is them um, really making sure that you are a safe person, that, um, that you're not going to leave, that you aren't going to hurt them, uh, that they can, in the most sense, trust you with their experience and with their story um, and with uh, their care. And so you know, I, I really emphasize uh, taking it slow and letting there be this space where we aren't feeling like we have to, you know, push any type of um, any um, theory or t- modality into the conversation or the, the room until until they're ready. And that may feel like, you know, client interfering behavior, but um, I, I really 
think that, you know, with any survivor of complex trauma, not, not just trafficking, you're not really looking at doing any type of work until six months in, maybe eight, sometimes a year. That is, I think, such a refreshing take because I think I at least feel this pressure around trauma-based work to super specialize, almost to the point of, I know a modality that works on this part of your brain specifically to fix your trauma. And to be reminded that it is really the relationship that is the healing space. And I mean, that's what the literature says in, in, you know, the counseling literature supports that it doesn't matter what sort of modality you're using. The relationship is what predicts the best outcomes. So, and maybe this is a space for both and, you know, that it's great that there's all this research support and these new developments in terms of very specific types of treatment that address trauma. And we can't forget that the relationship is the most meaningful piece. Yeah. It's like, for me, I just try to always normalize. And again, like taking off the hat of like expert and also like putting on the hat of like lived experience of like, I want a therapist who is going to let me talk about my daily work life stress for as long as I feel like I need to before I get feel comfortable enough to go into, you know, the real work. Uh, I think also for, you know, therapists to think about, okay, if you're working with a survivor of trafficking, expect them to quit therapy, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe more. And then, and then also opening that door of like, you can always come back, can always come back. I think that's really helpful in building that safe space for, and, and that, that um, secure attachment. That sounds like such an important mindset that someone would need to have in wanting to work with folks who have been trafficked is, you know, I think about all of the boundary setting work that I do with counseling supervisees in terms of your time is your time, you know, clients need to respect your time and I mean, not to the extent that we want to be harmful to clients, but um, when thinking about sure. working with this population where, you know, there's just as you say, and similar to DV in my experience, there's going to be the coming and the going and, mm -hmm. you know, a safe space needs to have a door that works both ways. Yeah. And, and I think that doesn't mean like as a therapist, you don't have your boundaries around like, again, maybe you charge for the mish session, but I think for, for me to say that, it, you know, it's helpful to let I think folks who, again, DV, trafficking, even it's helpful to say that within the first couple of sessions of like, you may decide to not show up or cancel or leave. Like, I, I think it's helpful to predict it before it happens and name it and normalize it and say, this is my policy, whatever it is for you in your private practice or, and, and say, the door is always open. If you can choose to leave or close the case as much as you want, and I'll, I'll still be here to work with you. And then, and then they know, we know like, okay, great. These are the policies and I can choose to break them as much as I want to. And I can choose to come back. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a, a perfect example of having a compassionate boundary, a boundary that isn't hard and spiky <laughs> that if someone runs into it, it's going to be harmful. Um, but one that does still offer kind of respect for, for the provider's needs as well. Um, I think that's just a wonderful thing to articulate. Okay. So since we are talking about aspects of the provider's experience, 
clients may come and go, how to set good boundaries. I was just, you know, as I mentioned initially, just struck by how heavy this work must be. So especially when we think about, my sense is that trafficking just really sort of epitomizes the worst of humanity. Just the willingness to exploit and harm, the depths of pain that we can go through and somehow still survive. Um, So how do you protect your own spirit as you encounter stories like this? Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest piece for me is continuing to have peer support. So others doing the work that I can call up and just sometimes shoot the breeze, like talk about nothing that has to do with the work at all, or call up and say, you know, I've had a hard day, not disclosing things about the case or the the nature of the um, individual you're supporting, but even naming, like, this is why this is hard. Um, And I also am a big believer um, of taking like good time off. Um, I think it's important. I I mean, this is my personal take, but um, yeah, factoring in two two week vacations. Um, I'll never forget when I was just starting out the work, I partnered a lot with a um, domestic violence or um, organization in the area. And there was a, um, a woman I worked with who worked for the organization. She had been doing DV work for years, like decades, and just always seemed to have this like really resilient, um, buoyant, joyful spirit where I just would pause and think like, my goodness, like you, you look like you are so well, like doing great. And, and I asked her, I said, what do you do to continue doing this work and, and preserving your soul and your spirit? And she, you know, really emphasized on how she created those boundaries for herself of taking off when she's off work, she's off work. Um, she took like several vacations throughout the year where she was turned off her work phone, computer for a couple of weeks at a time and, and wouldn't blink or bat an eye. And I think that's important to establish those boundaries for yourself um, and to really cultivate a language of play. Um, to cultivate a language of what that looks like for you to, to engage in, in rest and joy and things that are silly and ridiculous and have nothing to do with trauma outside of the work. Um, all of that is so important. And it's so freaking hard to really turn off your work phone, to really turn the email off, to feel like, because we can slip into that mindset of, somebody will need me. And that's the, that's the um, rescue mentality, right? And Again, no one needs you to rescue them. Even for every every provider everywhere, your clients do not need you to rescue them. Um, what they really need is for you to take care of yourself, so that when you do show up and come to work, you are the best version of yourself. I mean, I'm so glad you mentioned how that ties back to the the rescuer narrative, you know. And I'm I'm thinking about how sort of bi directional it is for if the therapist is so bought in to your empowerment that they're going to take two weeks off and expect you to not call them, then how reinforcing is that of potentially? I mean, it could be experienced as abandonment, obviously, by some clients, but we can fix that a little bit on the other end. But, you know, to embody this this trust in our clients, I think not only does it serve us to make sure we're taking care of ourselves with the time off, but it it's just, it's it's part of the messaging that we need to be sending that you're capable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean you don't put those supports in place of depending on where your client's at. If you, this is the person you call, if you need someone and we all have the crisis lines and those sort of things, but like, yeah, survivors of trauma need that example. They, they need also to see other people take care of themselves and to and enjoy life and to play and rest. And I, I think it's so critical. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to this thought around um, acknowledging that survivors are likely well out of the life and have been out of it for quite some time before they might present in an outpatient therapy setting. And also thinking about how difficult it is because of all these factors that we've already identified for folks to disclose. Um, What are some tips that you might offer for how to assess for a history of trafficking? If Mm. someone is not necessarily likely to come in with that as their primary concern? Mm -hmm. Um, So one, I want to say that I think you mentioned a survivor is not going to disclose until they're ready, but to ask questions about um, job history, to ask questions about family of origin, uh, to ask questions about, um, you know, I'm not a big and intake, let's check the boxes of all the questions. I try to get the general things I need to know, but kind of let how the conversation is going to shape and transform. Um, and I'd like to ask them too, how do you experience day-to-day life? What are your stressors like? Um, depending on the diagnosis, getting a little more insight on what your triggers look like. Um, I think you can gain a lot of insight from individuals by simply asking the question about family of origin, how you grew up, um, college experience, work, vocational experience. Um, and again, uh, you know, you may, it's, you may hear a story that the survivor may frame as like sexual abuse and it, and it be trafficking. Um, for a lot of survivors, they don't identify their experience is trafficking until someone, you know, says it is. Um, and that can be even mindful as a therapist, you, with that languaging, cause that can be very life altering as well for a survivor to realize, oh, that that's actually a lot, um, more than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. So when you're asking questions around family of origin, college experiences, work history, what kinds of cues kind of perk your ears up that you might ask some more kind of directed questions without kind of forcing disclosure before someone's ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think for family of origin, some things that I just like to ask, I mean, I always go with the open-ended, like what were your, did what were your parents? Like, um, did you live with them? Uh, what, what was their, um, what, what did they do for work? Uh, what, what was the nature of their presence? Like, um, I think I would stick with more of like the generalized questions. And as I gained data, if I felt like if they said something along the lines of, oh, like my, my you know, mom was really harsh and sometimes she would, um, you know, hit me or maybe if I learned more about abuse than I, depending again, where we are, I may not, I wouldn't probably get into all of this at intake, but I would put that in the back of my head and think, okay, well, there was a history of maybe physical violence, um, you know, verbal violence. I, I want to learn more about what, what was the nature of that abuse like? Um, and to gain insight, 
it, it could be it could be a door into trafficking. You know, why did she hit you? Why did she yell at you? Um, what were the reasons? And who knows? That person may disclose. Well, she would yell at me or hit me anytime I didn't go to our landlord to, you know, um, give him you know sex or for rent, those sort of things. Um, so I think it's like as a, what how I view it as a therapist is like. And again, like, you know, this well, Candace, I always, it's almost like sticky notes in the back of my head where I, I think, and, and move on that, um, even gut intuition of something, there's a little more here. Um, college experience, again, where'd you go to college? What was your major? Um, did you have, what were your key relationships in college? Uh, it, depending on where we are with our work, um, you know, if someone mentioned something on, yeah, I worked a really terrible job in college. Um, it, it, it really left me feeling um, really depressed um, and sad. Um, I Or I had an employer one time who was abusive. So again, I'd, I'd likely put a sticky note there and where we are in session, I would bring it back up. Um, if there was time to process, it would ask more questions around it. Um, so I Again, I always lead with asking questions that may lead to um, understanding more about their experience. And then if abuse comes up, I generally flag it and, and think, okay, this could be some realm of abuse or this could be more. It could be trafficking. Mm-hmm. Are there any go-to assessment instruments that you support around helping to identify survivors of trafficking? Yeah, um, the see it uh, tool. Uh, I may have to tag you in the show notes on this one. It's out of um, California, a wonderful organization. It's leaving my mind right now, but it's really great on helping identify uh, juvenile survivors of trafficking. So I speak more from now a counseling space where I'm seeing, you know, primarily adults. Uh, when when I was doing anti trafficking work, there wasn't there wasn't really many. There wasn't a, a tool that we all used, um, so to speak. Um, there was a couple things out there, but the See It tool is wonderful if you're working with uh, juveniles uh, to screen for that. If you hear, if you're picking up this this person, maybe a survivor of trafficking or actively engaging, it would be a great one to pull out to identify. And it it's a great on risk assessment as well. Well, I can also see how the the urgency for kind of moving the process along of disclosing, you know, it, it would be so much more urgent for someone who's, you know, a child still. Um, Mm -hmm. so having a tool that would really help to suss that out seems really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's kind of move back into this sort of systems approach. When you think about what your role is or what any mental health provider's role might be, to impact any of these systems, what what might that work look like? I think about it all the time, Candace. I do because this work I do now, I feel like it's I feel like I'm so freaking privileged working in private practice compared to what I used to do. And I love I love working in private practice. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but I feel like a lot of times the work I do is very isolated by the people who have insurance um, or who can pay the copay um, or who would even feel like my services would be an accessible fit for them based off my psychology today profile or, again, the website. So big question. Um, 
I think the way I've started to think about how I can do it better. And so again, I'm speaking from the space of like, I don't feel like I'm an expert on this at all. Um, I, I do my work with the, with the film, but sometimes they feel like isolated spaces where one, I'm doing work with the film and doing advocacy and then coming into private practice. And so I think, you know, what I personally need to do and, and want to do uh, is network better with these uh, entities that do support, um, you know, folks who are, um, again, part of the BIPOC community um, and are male identified survivors of violence. Uh, letting, even putting that more into uh, my profile that I can work with that and want to work with that, I think is helpful. I think that is in my profile, but, um, and then continuing to network again with these people in the community that do do that work. Um, I think I've, I've witnessed as I've stepped into private practice, sometimes it feels like a both and worlds, like there are two different worlds, the service care providers that are working in nonprofits and, um, those who are in private practice and, and maybe, I, and I believe I'm maybe speaking from what I'm experiencing personally. Um, but I think it's, it, it does sometimes feel like two different worlds. I so connect with, with that kind of the ick of privilege mm -hmm. in the outpatient therapy setting. Um, you know, and I, I think about just how poor a fit so much therapy is for, folks who are actively in the life, who are just out of the life, needing the resources just to get by in daily life. You know, I remember working at a community mental health agency that largely saw uninsured folks or folks with Medicaid. And I had one client who had schizoaffective disorder, um, had had part of her colon removed. So she had a colostomy bag. She was dealing with homelessness. She would take a bus for an hour and a half to get to her therapy session. And then what in the world do I have to offer this woman that actually meets any of her basic needs? Yeah. You know, I mean, I can be a, a, pre a kind presence. I can be, you know, I can help a little bit with resourcing, but don't have the background or the connections. So what I hear you saying is that, I mean, for one, we have to maybe put ourselves in a position that is consistent with how we want to be in the work. And maybe that ick is, is saying there's a different space that we might need to, to find our way to. I also hear you saying that relationships are really crucial to impacting even these really kind of almost too hard to swallow systemic issues. I think that's something we need to get better at is how do we bridge the gap? How do we think about, we have a lot of education and resource and training within these outpatient mental health settings, but and we're, and we're doing good work. Everybody needs a therapist. Everybody's got things that, you know, they, they need support. And, and there are communities that, um, we're, we're missing. A lot of mental health providers and maybe specifically I'll speak to the counseling field, how I feel like we have been sort of hamstrung by the medical model. Oh, absolutely. No, you are hitting on a big heart space for me and that the medical model sucks. I mean, I know that's not really proper to say sucks, but it, it's really I unhelpful. And I even think of, <laughs> I even think about what I mentioned earlier of like, so you have a really traumatized person show up and, and want to seek services for you and they quit a bunch and you don't talk about anything, but how stressed they are at, you know, you know, their college classes or their job. Um, for six, eight months. Um, 
the medical model would say, oh, you need to fix their problems in eight to 12 sessions. And you need to be using, you know, what TFCBT, whatever. I mean, those aren't culturally appropriate for a lot of different individuals. And two, um, that's not how we treat, that's how, that's not how we treat trauma. And so um, you're right. I mean, I think mental health has to get outside the walls of these of therapy offices and into the community. And, and again, this is some systematic stuff that we won't solve today, but be much more affordable uh, and equitable. I mean, we have to, therapists need to eat. We need to pay our bills, um, you know, those sort of things. And um, therapy is too freaking expensive. It's ridiculous. So in... In winding down our time today, I mean, I feel like I've just learned so much and I'm so incredibly thankful, but I want to come back to uh, sort of your experience as a provider in this space. How has this work changed you? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Um, I will say that, you know, all the men in the film, I would call friends and colleagues and um, still are much in touch with today. Um I have been deeply shaped by the uh, bravery of my um, colleagues who are male-identified survivors. Their um, strength and resilience um, and fortitude that continue they continue to show up and seek to change the movement, seek to change the narrative, and go against some really tough systems. And you know, hear things in conversations with other colleagues and large organizations that, oh, America's not ready to learn about, you know, the trafficking of male identified survivors. Um, they, they come up against so, so much and, and continue to draw on that inner well of one, wanting to see the narrative change for uh, survivors behind them. And two, uh, I think listening to, um, listening to their own um, bravery and, and wanting to show up and do the work. So that that has shaped me and given me the, my own courage to go after things that I feel import, are important. Uh, I think I've learned how to be a more tender and kind human from working with not only survivors of trafficking, but survivors of trauma. Um, it has really helped me listen to my own um, need to do my own recovery work. I'm such an advocate of if you're working with people do your work, do your work, do your work, do your work. Um, I have really had to check my biases time and time again, working with male identified survivors, um, paying attention to my body language. Why are my shoulders tensing up right now? Why am I fidgeting? What, what uncomfortability is arising in me? Um, and paying attention to how that will affect, how that does affect um, any, anyone I'm working with. Um, so altogether, I'd say it's made me a better human. I've learned so much. Um, many of, again, the, the men that I call friends and colleagues, not clients, two different categories here. Um, I would just call some of my, some of my closest friends, um, people that I could call up and um, shoot the breeze with or let them know what's going on in my life. Um, I, I continue to be humbled by the work, by... Um, getting to witness what you know well as a therapist as well, like the, the journey of people moving towards um, who they are, right? Trauma, there's no excuse for trauma. Um, there's no way we can dismiss it. There's no way that we can say that was supposed to happen. But what trauma can do is show us, again, um, our strength, 
to rise forward and beyond the trauma, right? It doesn't make us strong, but as we recover, we can look back and see how strong we are. And that's what I continue to be awed by working with survivors. I'm so thankful that you have taken this time to share this amazing and important content. And I'm always just amazed by your, you know, therapeutic acumen and your humility. Um, So just very grateful for this time with you. Thank you, Candice. So glad to be here. That's our show for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. For a list of resources for survivors of human trafficking, visit SalvationArmyCarolinas.org backslash Project Fight. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. I hear that cry.